Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler from So What's Your Story? We'd like to invite you to join us at a live event as part of Warwick Community College's Year of the Arts. Tony Russo and I will be interviewing Gina Vieira, the editor of Echoes and Visions Literary Magazine. The show starts 12.30 p.m. Monday, April 8th in the Hazel Center Cafe, and we'd love to see you there. We'd also like to take a second to remind you that you can subscribe to the podcast version of this show wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can hear any of our shows, see photos, or read the show notes at SoWhatsYourStoryPodcast.com. That's SoWhatsYourStoryPodcast.com. Thanks so much for your support, and thanks for supporting DPR. Now, enjoy the show. I found myself as I went along, though, relating her life to things that are happening today you know what? If I if I read something that was happening around 1900, I think well now, now Elizabeth was doing this or that at that time, and you know just kind of always relating back to what she was doing at the same time. Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler, and this is Tony Russo, and you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story, a podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, the stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have author Ross Jones, who recently penned an incredible biography called Elizabeth Gilman, Crusader for Justice. He chronicles the life and work of Elizabeth Gilman, a woman who came from privilege but became an early 20th century champion for social justice. And he is joining us today to talk about Elizabeth and her legacy, and welcome to the podcast, Ross. Thank you very much, Stephanie. It's great to be with you. Well, I am absolutely delighted to have you here. I've been sort of tearing through through the book here. And I think the first question I had for you is, and I think I know the answer, but how did you come to know the story of Elizabeth Gilman? I didn't have a clue as to who Elizabeth Gilman was. Uh, I was doing research in the Johns Hopkins archives. And I noticed in the file the name Elizabeth Gilman. I said, who is this? Her father, President Gilman, Daniel Coit Gilman, was the first president of Hopkins. And I certainly knew that name. I did not know he had a daughter, let alone two daughters. And so I said, could I see her papers? She had donated all of her papers to the university in the late 1940s before she died. And so they wheeled out this this long truck load of of, papers File, cabinet, file drawers, and it was just loaded with material, all kinds of letters, maybe hundreds of, several hundred letters, diaries, which you could read because she had a nice hand, which is helpful, uh, pictures, scrapbooks. Uh, it was just a great treasure trove. And so I spent a couple of hours just thumbing through all this, and I said to myself, this is a story, and I, I want to I pursue it. And that's how it started. It was a happy accident. A happy accident. I love that. When you, there's, there's a, a space between when you're like, oh, this is an interesting story and oh, this is an interesting story that I should write. Um, what was that transition like for you? Because, you know, I see lots of things. Like I have lots of notes. And I'm like, if you get to this, you should do this. What, what made you think this needs to be done and it needs to be done it, it really, directly? It really grabbed me. And I had a background in journalism. I liked, I liked to write. I was retired. I had time to write. And, and I loved the research. I think of all the things, of the, the research, the writing, and the promotion of the book, I loved the research most of all. And so it was an, I made up an excuse for myself to get back into the research angles and go deeply into it. And so that's what, uh, that's, 
I, there wasn't much of a gap between the, looking at the material and deciding I wanted to do it. Well, yeah, because her the early life that she had is so unusual and so fascinating. And just before the podcast, I think I was saying to you earlier that, you know, as a as a woman myself, I was captivated by this story of here's this woman in her teenage years, which would have been the 1880s. 1880s, yeah. And she's on a donkey riding up to the pyramids. Right, and right. she's, you know, going through Italy and she's doing all these things. And I remember thinking like, that must have been an incredible, just, I mean, that just must have been for her an incredibly transformative experience. But then for you to write about that, you know, you had so much, her travel diaries diaries. to pull on. Yes, yes. And um, she, as as you said at the beginning and the introduction, she was a a young woman of privilege. Um, Her family uh, were travelers. They, they They were world travelers. There was a lot of money in the Gilman family, and so they were able to do that very nicely. Um, when she was um, not quite five years old, she went to uh, Oakland, California with her aunt and her sister, where her father became president of the University of California. And I can't imagine what a train ride to Oakland in the, in, in the 1880s, 1870s, sorry, was, was uh, like, but she did it. Yeah. And then, and then when her father became president of Johns Hopkins in 1876, her aunt took her and her sister to Europe, and I think to get them get get them out of her father's hair while right. he was trying to start a university. Right. Sure. So she had this travel bug, and and uh, it seemed to it lasted all of her life. There's no doubt about it. And it seemed from the way that I from what I was reading that some of those travels where she saw some of the conditions that other people were living in. I mean, Absolutely. certainly she came from pl- privilege, yes. but she was traveling the world and she was seeing a lot of different people in different circumstances. And it sort of seems in the book that that sort of feeds into a vocation later where she takes up this banner for social justice, for women's rights, for poverty, for, for those sorts that, of things. That's absolutely right. Her father had a great social conscience himself. And um, he started, uh, here he is, president of the new university, first president. He started an organization in Baltimore called the Charitable Organization Society. And I, I think of it as a kind of a United Way uh, yeah. uh, umbrella organization, except that they also provided social workers for the, the poorest parts of Baltimore. And they were called Friendly Visitors, Friendly visitors. which I think is a wonderful yes. title. Um, and, and he encouraged her to go into that. She had had some experience in, in social work, quote-unquote, uh, with her church. The church reached out to parts of Baltimore that needed, needed help. But anyhow, she became a social worker. And then her father, uh, on two different occasions, when they were traveling in London, took her to the docks of East London, Oof. which were really sites of poverty. Um, there was a, an Episcopal priest that, uh, that uh, she was introduced to, and he took her and her father around and showed so abject poverty that she had never seen in Baltimore. Um, that was 1883. She came back there and, uh, and saw him again in 1886. So when she came back to Baltimore, she was motivated more than ever to, to put her hand in to uh, help others through, the, through social welfare. What interests me is that that is kind of what comes out in her papers because the other thing that's always fun, the reason that I can get caught up in research is that 
there are so many stories and you have to decide which ones to keep yeah and which ones and which ones aren't going to make it and that's i know i i had the i had the privilege of working for a couple of days in the van pelt library doing uh uh, in in Philadelphia, doing research for for one of my beer books, and I just kept finding I found all of this interesting stuff that the guy I was researching did that had nothing to do with beer. And I'm like, well, maybe I'll write a book about agriculture instead because it was just there's so much compelling stuff when you have that because he had he had papers and papers and papers and kind of sticking to the script must have been. I think it's I think it's the most. The biggest challenge for me it was because you tend to go off in lots of different directions and you say, why am I doing this? I got to come back to the main subject. But there's so many interesting things that flow out of one person. And, and I had that happen a number of times. I thought, well, I'm wasting time. I got to get back to the subject. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think that's a natural inclination yeah. for writers, especially when you're, especially in nonfiction, you know, yeah. because you're you know, you, you find yourself like, oh, well, she was in Egypt. What was Egypt yeah, like then? Exactly, or, you know, and exactly. How long did it take her to get from this point to that point in Egypt? I was, I was interested in that. How, yes. long did the, how long was the ship ride? Yes. What was the, when was the ship built? And what were when, they wearing? And what were they wearing? <laughs> you know, and, and those sorts of things. Yeah. And, and then that helps you sort of paint a picture so you know that, you know, when she's on this donkey approaching the pyramid, she must have been wearing these long skirts. Yes, and, exactly. And I think it also helps you not only write the narrative, but also understand more about the character, although she wasn't a character, she was a real woman, but to kind of help you understand her a little more. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. I, I must say, I had a very good editor, <laughs> and she helped me in a, a lot, you know, to, to get rid of what really wasn't uh, to the point. Sure. And that, that was a big help. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's important as we, we talk about serving the narrative a lot here and it's important to have someone who can say, yes, that's a cool story. That's not this story. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> and, and there, cause there, there is a difference, you know, there's oftentimes there's something that you're like, well, this is well-written, you know, and it, and it, and it's really fun to read, but what is it doing? What, exactly. what does it do? If it doesn't get you from the beginning to the end, Exactly. Then you don't. Yep. Then you're yep. asking too. You're asking more of the reader yep. than yep. than they've committed to. And, you. And, and in my case, that's where my my editor helped a lot. And she was she is a, a Washington College graduate, and she also won the Sophie Kerr Prize. Oh, this is fantastic. Sue De Pasquale is her okay. name. Okay, fantastic. And uh, and she was enormously helpful to me. Well, shout out to Washington College yes, and absolutely. Sophie Kerr Prize winners. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> you're listening to So What's Your Story. And this week, our guest is author Ross Jones. Remember, you can check out this entire interview and all of our past interviews at SoWhatsYourStoryPodcast.com. I wanted to ask a little bit about the publishing process. So did you have a publisher going in or did you start this and then say, well, this is something I'm going to... I started it with, with Sue and said, what do you think? Do I have something here? And she said, yes, you do. And um, then I discovered uh, the publisher, that I, uh, someone I'd known for a long time, but hadn't seen or been in touch with for years. And uh, I got in touch with him, and uh, uh, I said, on the basis of uh, Sue's recommendation, I want you to take a look and see what you think. And fortunately for me, he was very positive about it. And that was our good friend, Ron, Ron Souter yeah. of, of Secant Press. Secant, absolutely. Publishing, yep. Yeah, and yeah. he and he has all he is really focused. I think his his press on putting forward really um, 
really well done books. I mean, I, you know, when I we've we've had other authors um, of Ron's, you know, you know, authors in his stable, mm-hmm. and every single one has just been top notch. So, you know, when Ron, you know, had said that you know you were coming forward, I I knew right off the top that well, it was going to be good stuff. Well, uh, um, I just feel incredibly lucky because Ron has focused on the shore, on the Eastern Shore, authors. And he was going to take me on, and I felt very <laughs> fortunate because right. I'm on the Western Shore. <laughs> <laughs> we won't hold that against Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. I, I totally. Won't. I got That's my passport up to date when I came across the bridge. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, what was it like working with Ron? I mean, you you two knew each other from a previous professional. Yes, relationship. yes, yes. We both worked at Johns Hopkins for for a while. I, me, a very long time, and Ron, a little less. But uh, but we did not keep in touch after he left, and. Um, and it was it was good. We you know emailed back and forth. I hate to think of how much email we did, uh, but it was a, a very very comfortable relationship, and I am totally indebted to him. Well, I think it one of the things we talk about on this show a lot is that you know writing is a very solitary endeavor. It's something that we all do you know by ourselves. But to have a a really strong relationship with an editor that you trust who who knows their stuff. And then also to be able to have a relationship with an intelligent, strong publisher. I mean, that's a trifecta that's going to win every single time. You're absolutely right. Absolutely. Initially, when you when you started out, did you have like how long did it take for the story for the main thread to kind of take shape of your story? Like, how did you give your editor enough? Not too much for her to, you know, you you must have given her enough that she could say gave her a lot. Oh, yeah, really? I gave her a lot, yes. I mean, I had I had pretty much the whole thing, um, and then she helped me very well to organize it in a way that flowed better, cut out some stuff that probably shouldn't have been in there. Um, so it, it, it flowed much better as a result of the help that, that I got from her. I there, think so. I'm sorry. There are some times when you get to know something so well, and this happens to me often when I'm writing – I'll forget whether or not I put something in. Like, did I did I do that, or do I just know that, or do I just think other people know that? Yes. Like, and that's a, that's always a tough question, yes. right? Is this common knowledge, or have I just been underwater for so long that I think it's common knowledge? Yes, I understand that. Did you struggle with that? Not, not too much. Yeah, I didn't. Not too much. Um, I, I I found myself as I went along though, relating her life to things that are happening today in, in society, or, or dates. Uh, you know, what, if, I, if I read something that was happening around 1900, I think, well, now, now Elizabeth was doing this or that at that time. Oh, yeah. And, you know, just kind of always relating back to what she was doing at the same time. Well, I think that's, I think that's a natural impulse, you know. I mean, even in the work that I'm doing now, there are frequently times where you know, that very same thing will come up and I'll be like, oh, well, this was occurring at that time and this is where this particular person in the story would have been. But I think, you know, as authors, when we become passionate about our subject, when we become passionate about the thing that we're doing, it sort of bleeds in. And so there's Elizabeth Gilman in this book, but there's also Ross Jones in this book. Oh, I guess so. And so I think that we sort of, you know, we bleed in and out of the narrative sometimes, you know. You know. Some people have asked me what her legacy is. And to some degree, I think maybe I'm her legacy. Yeah. Uh, in the sense that, that all of her materials, papers, you know, were all buried in, in files. And no one knew about her. 
No one knows about her in Baltimore today. And so I've tried to get her out where people can get to know her and what a, a magnificent force she was for, for doing good. Yeah. And so maybe I'm a little bit of her legacy. I think that's a beautiful sentiment, though. I think that, you know, you, you sort of mentioned that in, in the preface, if I remember correctly, that, you know, if you were to say the name Elizabeth Gilman, nobody would have an idea. But right. she ran for governor yeah, and, right, right. you know, she led a, basically a political party in Maryland. and did these things as a woman at a time when like women couldn't even vote, you know? And so I think that she is such a dynamic figure. And I think that she is such a dynamic woman that writing about her sort of makes sense. And it's to me, I feel like it's a, it's a treasure that, you know, as women like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are rising to the front here, we can see like, you know, what would have potentially been a precursor in, in, an, in another time and place. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, Elizabeth uh, was a, a more calm, shall we say, but I think it may have reflected her era, too, sure. in terms of socialism. And the thing that, one of the things that fascinated me was that socialism really peaked in this country in 1912 uh, when Eugene Debs ran for president, and he, he received 6% of the total vote in the United States, which was pretty good. But back in those days, it amazed me to discover that there were 1,200 elected socialists in cities, mayors, city council members around the country, 300 newspapers published by the socialists. There was a a paper in Milwaukee called the Milwaukee Leader, 30,000 subscribers. So they were, you know, it was an active, active group in this country. But along comes World War I, and they split along pro-war and pacifist lines, and it, it really hurt the party. Um, and then the federal government clamped down on them as radicals, got to watch out for these people, took away their second-class mailing privileges, and so the party was really in, in shambles when the, when the war got underway. And, and it fascinated me that Elizabeth and her friends, a few friends that she had in the Socialist Party, um, were willing to carry on the message of socialism despite having peaked so many years earlier. Sure. Still beating the drum. Still beating the drum. And there's some people still beating the drum. Sure. You know, absolutely. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But I think it was there was a moment um, sort of early on when she sort of kind of comes to the, the socialist cause when she has this line and I, th- I think it was maybe in one of her letters and, and I won't get it exactly right, but she says something to the effect that she wasn't sure that, you know, politically she was a socialist, but the, the socialist ideals were something that were close to her heart. In her heart. That's in her exactly heart, right. You, know, you got it right. For women and those yes, sorts of things. Yes. And it was almost like she was almost not necessarily a conscious yep. socialist, but like her heart. She was said, her- I realized, yes. I realized I was a socialist at heart. And that was that was long before she declared, you know, per, in publicly that she was a socialist. You're listening to So What's Your Story, and this week our guest is author Ross Jones. Remember, you can check out this entire interview and all of our past interviews at So What's Your Story Podcast dot com. Also, remember that every smartphone has a podcast app, so it's easy to subscribe. 
Just find your podcast app and type in So What's Your Story. If you listen to it for long enough and you find you like it, we would really appreciate a great review. And tell your friends, hey, you should listen to this show. Now let's get back to it. When you were talking earlier about um, finding her papers and going through her papers, it's interesting because her papers wouldn't have... She was important enough to have her papers kept, but too much of a woman to have them preserved. You know what I mean? It's it's like we don't know what to do with these, but they're not historically significant because they're something well, that she, a woman Well, she she had this real really close relationship with Johns Hopkins University because of her father being the first president. So I can just imagine that um, when she offered to give the university her papers, they weren't going to say no. Um, but on the other hand, as you just said, I guess they didn't really know what to do with them either. Right. So uh, they put them in the in the file, so to speak. That's that's the that's the beauty of the uh, the professional librarian is like, well, if it's written down, I'm going to save it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know it, what for. It's a but challenge. If someone wants it. It's a challenge today, particularly. Oh yeah, I know. To to because because of a lack of space. Yeah. yeah right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But anyhow, they were they were thank goodness they kept the papers. But I have to, if I might digress just a little bit, um, on the same same general subject, and that is that she was very close to an Episcopal priest, who shared her interest in social welfare and the social gospel movement and that sort of thing. And I, there were a couple of references in the in the papers at Johns Hopkins to him, but nothing much else. And I thought to myself, his name was, by the way, his name was Mercer Green Johnston, and so I thought. I wonder if I just take a chance and I'll get in touch with the Library of Congress, which I did. There are 40,000 items belonging to Mercer Green Johnston in the Library of Congress. He was a prolific writer and had great correspondence. And he had all of the, all of the letters that he and Liz exchanged. She gave them all to him at some point. And, and, and without, without finding them, in the Library of Congress, I would not have had a real book because I wouldn't have had any knowledge of him. Right. So it was a treasure trove. I went over and spent about a week in Washington. Mm-hmm. I was just and, about and, to say, how long does it take to, to, to go to, through 40,000? Well, well, I didn't have to go through all that oh, okay. because they had they had files with Elizabeth Gilman. Okay. See, and all of their okay. stuff. It's, it's but, nothing. I've, I only, I've only been in a library like this the one time when I was in the Van Pell Library, and it's just the way they have it organized is stupendous I, lo- I loved it i loved it you tell them what you want the day before they've got boxes with your names on them right one box at a time right and certain protocol the table and what you yeah they can only they, use they pencils no pens naked before you go in <laughs> it's it's well, very I mean, much like i mean you have, to have, you have to have an id card yeah. you know and, all kinds and a pencil of stuff. and that's all you get <laughs> that's right but but anyhow it was it was really um it was a wonderful experience and Along the way, how tempted were you to go off on on a tangent about like? Oh, oh uh, often, <laughs> often because he was, um, uh, he, as I said, he was an Episcopal priest. He had been thrown out of his church at Trinity Church in uh, Newark, New Jersey, in 1916 because he was too liberal. He really was a socialist, and he was he was an advocate for church reform. And the conservative members of the church, of which most of them were, did not like him and fired him. His father was a bishop of West Texas. And, and uh, he, um, he was very well regarded in the church. And so here his son gets fired. 
the, the bishop of New Jersey writes a, a, a letter to the father saying how sorry he was and didn't work out, blah, blah, blah. And, and then I'm, so I'm tempted to go off and look, at, look into the father. Right. The, father, the father was a Civil War veteran. I mean, he ran a private boys' school that Douglas MacArthur had attended. You know, all, all these things. I thought, oh, my goodness. And I had to pull back because it was so tempting. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just it's rabbit hole after rabbit hole after <laughs> yeah, rabbit hole. It's a good way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> and so now that you've kind of wrapped it up and, and you're out promoting it, um, I, I'm just wondering, like, what kind, of, what kind of things do you do to get the book out? Like, talk to me about the, the space between turning in your final draft and then, you know, going and having book signings and things like that. Well, Ron Souter has helped helped guide me, which has been very, very helpful. Um, and I've I've had some uh, I've had some really nice experiences. I've, I've been speaking to various clubs in Baltimore. Um, I spoke to um, 450 boys in the Gilman School in Baltimore uh, because uh, Elizabeth helped name the school. Um, <laughs> she didn't try very hard, though. Was that? <laughs> <laughs> I said she didn't try. Well, it's called the Gilman School. It wasn't like there was a long. No, but 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 the, but the thing was that she was upset with the Hopkins trustees after her father died, uh-huh. and uh, they weren't going to give him a, 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 a by her standards a proper memorial. Um, uh, and so when the chairman of the board of the Country School for Boys in Baltimore got in touch with her and said, "We'd like to name our school for your father," she says, "Absolutely." Go for it. Right. And it turns out, though, that the trustees had made a deal with her mother that nobody can use the Gilman name without getting approval of the trustees, all men. And so she says, forget it. We're going ahead with it. And, <laughs> and, and they, they backed down. They backed down. So that's how the Gilman School got its name. That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, and um, and today you're talking about pleasant experiences. You were at the oh, the Greyhound Bookstore oh, here in Berlin. Oh yeah, that, that was a, that was just remarkable. So many nice people came in, and I was able to sign a, a number of books. Um, but uh, it's been each each experience, each place I've gone, I've been nicely received, and um, so much more than I realized I would be. And so it's been a. a I just want to get the story out. Yes. And. Uh, well, I think there's something, you know, in in our society today, you know, you see, you know, the Me Too movement, you see a lot of, you know, we have, you know, how many women running for president now? And I think, you know, we're seeing this sort of not not an emergency. We've always been emerging, but I think there's a particular sort of focus, you know, and to see someone like Elizabeth Gilman, you know, kind of coming to a forefront and being put in front of new eyes and people that, I mean, I had never heard of her until I started, you know, looking, you know, at the book for, for Ron. And, um, you know, I, I think there is something sort of timeless or it feels sort of timeless about her. You know, there's all the sort of stare, all the struggles that she went through and sort of this coming from one world and stepping foot in another. And so I think there's a lot of things about her story that will be relatable. I really today. hope so. And I hope it might motivate some younger women to, uh, to uh, emulate her and, and their commitment to social welfare. Um, and and uh, if it's socialism, so be it. But, but social welfare and looking out for, for people. You know, she said in a very simple way when she was campaigning for governor, she always said, you know, that, that uh, the, the purpose of the Socialist Party is to make the world better for everybody, 
And uh, that, that's a pretty simple but straightforward message. And um, if socialists today can say that, okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you were talking a bit about, you know, maybe wanting to go off on other tangents. Do you have another project in the works? No, or? I don't. Not, no, I, I want to get, get, get this one digested. Um, I, I've, uh, I've thought about a memoir, but I've been a little, I, I've had a very interesting life and a lot of, a lot of stories. And, um, but, but I'm, I'm told maybe memoirs are hard to get across. Um, unless you're, unless you're the president of the United States or something like that, sure, or or or, or Mrs. President of the sure, United States. Sure, I, I would love that. I would love to see that, and I know Elizabeth would too. <laughs> All right, Stephanie. Now it's the part of the show where you thank the guests. Oh, thank you so much, Ross, for being oh, on the podcast. What a great pleasure. Thank you both very much. Thank you. So What's Your Story was produced by Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at SoWhatsYourStoryPodcast.com where you can find past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Radio Public, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, take a second and give us a great review. Tell your story.